Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Matt Fitzgerald. Matt's an endurance coach, a sports nutritionist, and the best-selling author of more than 20 books, including The Endurance Diet and 80-20 Triathlon. He's been a runner since age 11, and today he's going to share the wisdom that he's gained through personal experience of training and running and competing, and also going out and studying some of the world's best athletes about how they train, the types of foods that they eat, and their lifestyles that allowed them to be elite. Matt, can you tell me a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you got into endurance running? Sure. Yeah, I describe myself as an endurance sports author, coach, and nutritionist. Um, I've been a runner most of my life. I started when I was 11 years old, influenced by my dad, who was running marathons back in the 80s. Um, had a little bit of a hiatus, kind of burnt out near the end of high school, but got back into it um, in my mid, mid to late 20s. Um, I'm, I've also, I also grew up always wanting to be a writer. My dad is also a writer, so I had the, the role model right there in the house for for both the athletics and my vocation. Um, and I didn't necessarily anticipate writing about endurance sports, but the first real break I got in journalism was with an endurance sports related magazine and that led to every other door that opened subsequently. Um, initially I was really just a journalist, but I, I sort of developed my own, um, expertise over time and started coaching and then, uh, got a certification in uh, sports nutrition. Uh, so now it's a mix of the writing, the coaching, and uh, the nutrition consulting. It's awesome. What do you think are some of the most important things that you learned along this process? Oh, man. I mean, it's a, it's a long list. Probably at the top of it is, you know, that old uh, axiom, follow your bliss. Um, that's the way I've always been wired. You know, I just have a very low tolerance for doing things I don't feel like doing. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I have a very clear, I've always had the blessing of just a, a clear sense of what I, what my passions are. And so, you know, the, the career path I've taken, it's not really a terribly easy way to make a living, but I always understood that I was happier doing things I enjoyed and not making a lot of money than I would be, you know, going to law school and making a lot more money and perhaps not enjoying it so much. So that has served me well. You know, I've, I've had lean times and I've bottomed out a few times, but looking back, I, I have no regrets about, you know, having, you know, my, my bliss or, you know, my passions really be sort of the pole star that, um, you know, has guided my career choices. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of, or at least I feel like a lot of people would are, are driven to by these more external, these external things, right? Like uh, trying to make more money, and then they give up their passion or they give up their their bliss, as you said, or um, like that essentially trying to conform to society, or whatever. What is it that, like, what do you think it was that has allowed you to trust that bliss? Is it some a skill set you developed or developed in time? Was it trial and error? Was it just like something that's always been instinctual that you've been able to listen to your intuition? Part of it was how I was raised. You know, my my parents encouraged that. Um, you know, they. You know, I I know I have peers who had parents who 
who you know try to tell them what their career choices should be you know my parents uh, the message i got from them consistently was um do what you like and you know the finances will take care of themselves you know that they, they they were interested in they wanted me to see life as a blank canvas you know that i could paint whatever i wanted on so i grew up that way but you know i, I have two brothers who haven't haven't really had the same career pattern i have so the thing i had on top of parents who instilled that message was also just knowing what i liked you know um you know, I think I was nine years old when I decided I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And I just, I simply never changed my mind at any point, ever. I wasn't even tempted to do anything else. It was going to be writing or, or nothing. Um, and that's just, you know, a born this way type of thing. You know, I was just, you know, uh, I, I was just lucky in that regard. It's, it's interesting. And you also had, as you said, your dad is a model. Do you feel like when you look back, you were very much like him, or do you feel that, like maybe conforming to that model was easier? Yeah, I, I am very much like him in, in a number of ways. Um, you know, you know, my dad grew up in in farm country with you know a, a, a different time and a very different environment, and he didn't have that kind of model. So he was probably, I mean, he, he's a very gifted writer, but it took him a lot more stumbling around you know he went to engineering school um and he was he was married and had kids before he decided that what he really wanted to do was right um and and so i, I had a real advantage in that regard you know because by the time i was really a sentient person you know my dad had published novels with his name on the spine in the house so you know i, I grew up just knowing that was a real possibility if you you know worked worked hard at it um, but I am a lot like him, but you know, we're very different kinds of writers. You know, the whole time I was growing up, I wrote my metier was satirical poetry. <laughs> you know, I couldn't write a novel to save my life. You know, that's that's my dad's uh, genre. So, um, you know, that's the great thing about writing is that you, you know. It's not. It's very different from sports in that regard. In sports, you have first place, second place, third place. In writing, there's a million and one ways to be a good writer. You know, and you, you don't necessarily have to you know outdo uh, you know exactly what the role model in your own home is doing. You can just um, you know it was great because you know from the time I was you know, in grade school, I would write things like enter local writing contests and stuff, and I would share with my dad what I'd written. And he would edit it, you know, and he wouldn't hold back, you know, he was encouraging. But if, you know, if something was wrong, you know, he, he would hand things back to me with, you know, red ink all over them. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was great because I got the training, but I also got to sort of find my own way and become, you know, the writer that, that only I could be. Yeah, that's awesome. Where do you feel this has showed up, sort of this intuition or instinct to follow inner voice? has showed up in other parts of your life and other places that it hasn't shown up? Well, you know, a great example of where else it has shown up is in my marriage. Um, you know, I, my, my wife and I are exhibit A of the law of opposites attract. Um, just, you know, demographically, like right up and down the line, we're, you know, we're not a match. Um, I'm white, she's African-American. I'm from the East Coast, she's from the West. I'm from 
you know, the backwoods. She's from the inner city. Um, I had, you know, socioeconomic advantages that she didn't have. She grew up religious. I did not. You know what I mean? Like, we, <laughs> oh, but, you know, in, in romance, just as in, you know, uh, vocational stuff, I always just, you know, when I encountered women, you know, out dating, like I just, I had a, an attraction or a repulsion that was not really about that demographics or whatever. So I sort of trusted something in me. I didn't really always know what the heck I was doing. You know, I couldn't have sat down and made a list of like my ideal woman because it was such like a, a subterranean by feel type of thing. But again, it served me well. You know, I, I met my wife, Nataki, when I was 26 um, on a blind date. Um, and again, like the person who set us up, you know, who knows what, what she saw as the basis for something that could work. But, you know, I was open, you know, to it and went with it. You know, it took us a long time to sort of figure out how to communicate because we really almost spoke different languages. We just had so you know, different gender expectations based on the different environment that we grew up in. But, you know, here we are, you know, 21 years later, um, you know, still together. I, I would like to say, I can't speak for my wife, but I would say, <laughs> I would say happier than ever. Um, and so that's, you know, that's an, another really good example of just sort of my blank canvas orientation toward life, kind of working out in the long run. How long do you feel like it took you to really connect and communicate with her you know it, it, it happened in stages um but you know we probably got over the first big hump in that regard um i would say you know it probably took about 18 months um you know because initially for me i just i just found her very physically attractive and intriguing so that sort of kept me in the game it's like you know <laughs> you know i did you know, I wanted to give the thing a chance um, because, you know, I, you know, I, I, I liked her and was intrigued. But, you know, um, you know, once we started like cohabiting stuff, then it's just a different ball game and it gets serious and you have to get on the same page in, in certain ways. And, you know, it, it, it was challenging. You know, I mentioned sort of the gender expectations earlier. Um, you know, she just seemed very hard to me, you know, for a female. And I seemed, you know, very soft to her for a, for a male. And so those things, you know, they, they can, they lead to fights, you know, you know, because so much of good communication is based on sort of what you expect from the other, how you expect your own words and behaviors to be interpreted by the other. And we were just, you know, you know, ships passing the night in, in that regard for, I would say, you know, a good year and a half before we had sort of like a basic <laughs> foundation for, you know, having more constructive dialogue and certain certain areas so during that time were you guys fighting a lot or were you disconnected um and just sort of like suppressing things what what did this feel like yeah we we fought a lot um you know my my style is more of the head in the sand avoidance not i'm not quite the the passive aggressive silent treatment type but you know i, I would tend more to um run away from conflict whereas Nataki wants to have it out. Um, and that ended up actually being the thing that saved us because I, I was in a previous long-term, like multi-year long-term relationship that really sort of fizzled because I would avoid conflict and, and that girlfriend w was only willing to 
push so hard or, or pull so hard to get my head out of the sand. Whereas Nataki just wouldn't give up. Like she would force the issue so that we had, <laughs> you know, we, had, we sooner or later we had to work it out. And if not for that, you know, we, we, our relationship would have failed. So it's really to her credit um, that, um, you know, the thing really got the proper opportunity. I, I just think about something I read recently where uh, this woman was talking about this friendship cycle and that when we first meet somebody, it's sort of like the honeymoon phase. And then at some point we have conflict with people and, uh, or if we have conflict with people, either at the end of that conflict, we're going to still be friends or we're not. And for those people who survive that conflict, often the relationship deepens. And yeah. I think the same thing applies to relationships. So it's, yeah, I think it's really awesome. You mentioned that the friends set you up. Do, what do you think were the values that, or, or what was it do you think the friends saw in the two of you that might make that person think you were a good match? You know, uh, it, it's interesting because, so, so the woman who, who hooked us up was a, a mutual friend, a woman named Tasha, um, a Panamanian uh, woman, fluent Spanish speaker. Neither of us knew her all that well, but you know, we had sort of the same level of friendship on, on opposite sides. Um, and before the blind date, um, I used to like have lunch with Tasha once or twice a week and I, I would grill her about this mystery woman she was setting me up with. And the only thing I could get out of her was you're both snobs. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in retrospect, I think what she meant by that is that we both have very high standards uh, in, in certain respects. N Nataki has extremely high standards for herself. Um, there's an expression my brother, who's a Buddhist, uses. Um, everyone, everyone wants to feel better. Very few want to be better. Nataki is one of those people, and you know, I've been with her for 21 years, uh, and I can say it's absolutely true um, that Nataki just wants to be a better person, even if it doesn't always make her feel better. So she has very high standards for herself, but also applies those to other other people. That's exactly why she wouldn't let me off the hook when we had conflict is, you know, her, her philosophy is, you know, we've only got so much time on this earth. Let's, let's live real lives. <laughs> um, so there, that was her. And then for, for myself, you know, my, the same brother who, uh, the, the Buddhist, um, he nicknamed me at one point project Matt, uh, because I I've always been on this major, not always, but since from a very early age, been on like a major, you know, uh, self-actualization kick like i always want to be on the ascent you know that's why i love endurance sports so much because it's like this you know not always quite linear but you know this path uh, of ascent you know i'm better tomorrow than today um and you know with the writing you can always it's one of those things where you know my dad is 75 now and he's writing better than ever because he's just kept at it um so i think that's what uh we have in common is that uh uh, we have high standards for ourselves um, and and for others as well. I've always tended to befriend people I admire. Um, they don't necessarily have to be like me, but I'm always I'm just drawn to people who have something I've I want but don't have myself in terms of uh, um, you know aptitudes or passions or or what have you. So I think that that was kind of the the, the tie. Super interesting. It's awesome. Um, and you, how old were you when you met her? 
26 and she was 22. Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I, I, I love this. Um, I want to shift a little bit towards some of the endurance stuff. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the endurance of your relationship a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, some of your endurance sports stuff. And you've been doing this for a long time. I think I read that you've been running since 11. Is that right? Yep. Yep. What, what are some of the things that you learned through the course of this journey about running and yourself and life that you feel like have served you well? Um, you know, the, the big one is, um, you know, through endurance or my, through my pursuit of endurance sports, I, I've been able to bootstrap myself to a much higher level of, uh, you know, mental toughness or resilience than, than I had initially. Um, you know, I, I, running was really ruined for me in, in sort of the first chapter and the high school chapter of my athletic, uh, life by mental weakness. Um, I was, I was one of the better runners in, in my state in, in New Hampshire. It, and so, you know, I would be, you know, competing for, you know, podium finishes and state championships. But when I, when I got to that level, I just didn't have the, the mental toolkit. You know, I would get, everyone gets nervous before races, but I would get sick nervous before races. And I just, you know, everyone hates the suffering you have to go through during a race. But I, I just had this inordinate kind of over-the-top terror of, of those sensations. And it, it, it led to um, some really regrettable actions on my part, such as like faked injuries, um, you know, sort of like, you know, mailing in some of my race performances, you know, your coach may not be able to tell if you're only giving 95%, but you know, um, and, and you sort of, you know, walk away from the finish line, just, you know, stewing in shame. Um, I even failed to show up to the start line of one, uh, race, uh, pretended I'd missed the call to the start cause I just couldn't face it. Um, and ended up just quitting. You know, I was, I was, I was spiraling down. You know, I had intended to run in college. I was recruited to run in college by a, a number of schools, but uh, didn't end up doing it uh, because I just, you know, physically I had, you know, a certain amount of talent. I was never going to be an Olympian, but I just didn't have the mind for it. So, you know, when I quit, I thought I would never run again. And lo and behold, in my mid twenties, it just suddenly I was doing it again. And you know, I, I wanted to fulfill the unfulfilled potential um, I had as an athlete. But it, in order to do that, I, I knew I had to become mentally stronger. And that was really the number one priority for me. I just, I did not like the way I saw myself, uh, you know, at the time I, I quit running and I wanted to, again, maybe it gets back to that sort of high standards thing. I just, I wanted to be, I want, I wanted to respect myself and I just didn't. And, and endurance sports are just a great, uh, you know, playground for people who want to change themselves. You know, not, it could be in any of a number of ways, but that's the one, the thing I wanted to do was just sort of prove my mettle to myself. Um, and, uh, it worked, you know, intention was really the, the, the main driver of that. I just kept getting back on the horse until, you know, I was no longer terrified of, of those sensations anymore, but sort of, um, you know, now when I'm on the start line of a race, I feel like I have an advantage mentally over the people I'm competing against. So it was, it was, it did not happen overnight, but it was a really cool transformation to experience. And, you know, you can't, 
there's no separation between the athlete and the human. So that transformation has affected my whole life. How long did it take to, to make that transition? Uh, you know, it, it was another one of, those, one of those things that happened in stages. Um, you know, the first big stage uh, or the big step in the process was just doing it anyway, like still having the fear and the terror and you know not being able to go quite as deep into the pain cave as I would like in crucial moments, but still like being there on the start line, you know, and and not letting myself off the hook. You know, I would finish races and yes, I cared about my time and my place, but I would I would mostly grade my performance on how much I still had left in the tank. Um, and, you know, initially, you know, I was still terrified, still holding back a little, but but staying in the process, you know, sort of acting as if I had gone, I had come further than I had. And But, you know, to really sort of complete the process, you know, and get to the point where, um, you know, I'm just completely unafraid now, um, you know, that took years. I mean, many, many years, I, I think, close to 20 honestly to i mean maybe it's just, maybe it's better just to say that it's a never ending process um so i feel like i continue to evolve in, in that regard well as you said that maybe not all of this applies but like there's certain things that i hear one is um just this idea of showing up even you didn't really say this but even to be bad but just like willing to show up and just and do it but you you also said judging yourself after how much you have left in the tank so like like this idea of knowing that we we tried the best that we could and and sort of like using that as a measurement this idea of towards the end of like craftsmanship right like we as human beings we iterate and iterate and reiterate and we sort of develop this these crafts and maybe they're physical or mental or emotional but like and this idea that it's a continual process like uh, we're constantly sort of struggling with new things or problems or challenges and and uh, trying to maintain where we're at and continue to grow. And I feel like there's a lot of life lessons that could be applied to a relationship. A lot of us life lessons, even in the things that I mentioned that apply to relationships or starting a business or trusting a, uh, the development of a career path. I can also see those things in, in your writing, like the way that you describe your craft as a writer. So I think they're really cool. I mean, does that, am I in the right world? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you nailed it. You know, you choose certain things that you want to master and from there. I mean, you're an expert in endurance running and endurance stuff, sports. So like if somebody feels the call to get into endurance, uh, endurance athletics, uh, maybe because they want some of the things that you're describing, uh, maybe they want something else. Maybe they want to get in shape. Maybe they want that mental toughness, as you said, maybe who knows, but if, if they feel like that's an instinct or pull for them, how do you suggest somebody get started? Um, it's perhaps no surprise that this is my advice, but uh, I really, uh, I strongly recommend that even even absolute beginners uh, set their own goals and um, set goals that just feel right. Um, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that you know there is no bad goal. Um, if it excites you to do the next workout, that's really the purpose. Um, so even, you know, an athlete who has completely unrealistic goals that privately, I think the person just has no hope of ever achieving. I never pour cold water on those because it, it really doesn't matter unless that goal 
interferes with the day-to-day process. Um, but if, if, if the goal just, you know, excites the person to, you know, keep training, then ultimately they're, they're only going to be minimally disappointed when they don't achieve that, that goal because they're going to improve a lot. They're going to come to the point where they realize that they fulfilled their potential and maybe they didn't have as much potential as they once had. So, um, you know, if you're, you know, just getting started and because usually there's some kind of hook. I mean, you want to get started for a reason, right? Um, but, you know, the, the mistake I see a lot of people making is um, allowing outside expectations to influence their their goal setting um, too much. And that that can lead to just, you know, loss of motivation and, you know, kind of a, a, a short journey <laughs> in endurance sports that um, – so that, that's that's the big thing. It's like you can do this however way you like. And of course, you know, if you want to improve, you have to learn and you know copy best practices, blah, blah, blah. But initially, like the goal is just to fall in love with it, because if you fall in love with it, you're still going to be doing it five years from now. And that, that's what you want. So just give yourself license to to you know, set the goals that feel right to you and to sort of you know, do the sport your way. I'm just making notes. Um, there's a few things. I want to come back to this. There's a few things. You, you mentioned you don't want things to interfere day to day. What does that look or feel like? Well, you know, um, endurance sports is, it, you know, they are, it, it's a slow process. You know, improvement. I mean, you know, when you're a beginner, <laughs> you can improve relatively quickly. But, you know, if you want to run a marathon, for example, um, and you currently are not running at all. You know, you can't you can't go out and run 10, 10 miles as your first run. You know, you, you so the mistake people make when they have you know big ambitions uh, is to try to hurry the process. So that that's what I mean by interfering with the day to day. So I I think it's fine to have um, to set goals that you're nowhere near ready to achieve as long as you understand that. You have to start where you are. Uh, um, so, yeah, th- th- that's what I mean by that. So you, ha- you have to take the, the long view. It takes a certain amount of you know, patience to be an endurance athlete. Endurance. <laughs> uh, um, you, you talked about these external factors as motivators. What, like, what would be examples of that? Well, you know, uh, a very simple example is, you know, if you, let's say you get into running and sort of, you know, maybe you join a running club and you uh, develop new friendships, you know, with people who share that interest. Um, if, if, you, if you do that, it's inevitable that you're going to be exposed to the idea that you're not a real runner unless you run marathons or have run a marathon. But that's not a good goal for everyone. You know, some people just, you know, really prefer shorter stuff. Um, and they're, you know, they're better at it. And, you know, the marathon just doesn't really, uh, you know, strike their fancy. And yet uh, I see, I see it happen all the time. Runners who really have no intrinsic interest in doing that feel obligated to, and then, you know, just go through the process, not really enjoying it, you know, you know, being dissatisfied with the result. And yet, because they're in that milieu, they might go back and do it again, uh, which is, you know, kind of sad. So that's sort of what I mean is that you have to, um, 
you know, the goals really do need to come from within. You know, it's fine if someone talks you into doing something that you wouldn't have done if not for that, but you end up deciding is, you know, a good fit. You know, for me, you know, I, I, I was so oriented on time that I resisted getting into trail running where that's not really the thing until I was over 40. Um, so, but when I did, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. So, you know, that can, that can always work, but you, you have to, you know, be wary of, you know, sort of un, unhealthy peer influences in, you know, charting your individual course as an athlete. So if, if somebody's listening to this and they think that they might want to do a, a marathon or a triathlon or some type of endurance competition, how should that like evolve internally? Well, I mean, yeah, again, because, you know, this usually this doesn't happen in the abstract. Like, um, you know, people will, you know, they may decide they want to do that because they went out to support a friend who was doing it. Um, and, you know, like if you go you know, watch uh, a, a marathon and, you know, you're a non-runner, you'll either come away thinking, man, I never want to do that as long as I live or, man, I really want to do that. <laughs> Usually it's like kind of not in between. So, I mean, if that's the inspiration, then that's the door you step through. Um, or, you know, you see people all the time, they'll watch NBC's coverage of the Ironman World Championship on television, and they may not even know how to swim, but suddenly they're on fire to do a triathlon. So if that's your point of entry to the sport, you know, that is the door uh, you walk through. And, you know, from there it's um, – you know, the, there's an educational component. You have to sort of figure out what the heck you're doing and, and find, you know, resources that uh, can help you with that process. And it's also, there's a, you know, a, a, I guess a socialization component too that, you know, these, because anyone could go out and run 26.2 miles on their own on a random Wednesday, but that's not what people do, is it? You know, these are sports and, you know, they're, they're social things. So, you know, a, a huge part of the process is, you know, interacting with and, and um, building relationships with other people who are doing this stuff and are, you know, and, you know, obviously the social and the educational components complete bleed together because you end up, you, you learn a lot from your peers. Uh, they show you how to change a flat tire on your bike and uh, how to, you know, prevent saddle sores and all this stuff. And I can see like parallels to all these other things in life that we sort of approach and and pursue and so much of this advice is just I feel like excellent you talked about the education and the socialization so somebody is approaching endurance sports for the first time and they are trying to figure out where to start with those two places what would you recommend um you know, it, it, you know, this is really getting down to brass tacks, but it, it's, it's so simple. Um, you know, on the educational side, you know, it's changed since I, you know, I did my first triathlon in 1998. Um, now, I mean, anyone's going to go straight online, right? Uh, <laughs> and just, you know, poke around. Um, you know, like I, I, I just co-authored a, a new book called 80-20 Triathlon, which is, which is a real nuts and bolts training, tra training guide for, triathletes so you know it, it doesn't take a lot of legwork you know if you if you kind of catch the bug um to find a resource like that and then you know you you know you're, you may be starting from zero but you 
you know, it'll take, you know, eight hours of your life to read that book or whatever. And you come away from it way ahead of where you were initially. Um, you know, if you decide you want to get into running, you know, a very sensible first step is to find your you know, nearest uh, local running specialty retail store uh, to get yourself a pair of shoes. When you walk in there, I mean, those those stores, they don't just sell the shoes you need. They're they're hubs of your local running community. Um, so, you know, you get to talking with a guy or a gal who sells you the shoes and you'll learn about, um, you know, they might have a Saturday group run every Saturday. They, they might have a network of, you know, uh, coaches and physical therapists. Um, and so, you know, that's, that can start the socialization process very quickly right there. So just, you know, common sense first steps that you're going to take will, uh, you know, lead to the next and the next and the next. Any other sort of tips for somebody who wants to, it feels like they're being called into endurance sports? Well, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to underline this too much, but, you know, it's weird. As someone who's, um, you know, I spend a lot of time like uh, sort of interacting with and um, learning from elite level athletes. And, and what I found is that they're almost two different sports at the elite and recreational levels. And, you know, the, the elites, because their livelihood depends on their performance, they pretty much do everything right. I mean, not everything, but, you know, they because you, you, you can't I mean, you can't make it to the Olympics unless you're pretty much. Uh, following the best practices but at the recreational level you see all kinds of weird stuff that people are doing like funny diets or just uh, ridiculous you know training methods that you know no pro would, would ever adopt uh so you have to look out for that stuff there's you know there's little there's little sort of cult cults <laughs> within the broader endurance community that you, you know you, you Sooner or later, you will in, encounter them. You know, someone's going to try and talk you into eliminating all carbs from your diet or something. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, sort of scare people off by by sharing that warning. But, you know, I really like people to see. It's not that you have to act like a pro, even if you're just trying to finish a marathon. But, you know, I think you should want to do things right and not waste your time. Um, and it's per, it, it's all too easy to sort of get channeled down, you know, the, the wrong path um, if you don't sort of choose your advisors carefully. I think I think it's a great advice. I mean, if you apply it to other things, right? Like if you apply it to starting a business, right? You're gonna like most people are gonna want to use optimal strategies to start start a business. Or if we were to apply it to medical care, <laughs> most yeah. people are gonna want. Uh, optimal strategies when it comes to their their medical care, especially if it's something that's um, life saving or um, potentially life saving. Like I mean, there's all these other places in our life where we would use like we would want optimal s strategies. So um, I think it's really interesting. I wonder if you can talk about um, a few more of these sort of cult things that come up. You said the eliminating all carbs for your diet. Um, maybe you could explain some of these other landmines. And then yeah. also, uh, and then why they're bad, like bad ideas. And then also talked about some of the things that pros do consistently that makes them stand out. Yeah. So um, some of the other ones out there are, um, I may hate to pick on things by name, but there's like, there's like a, 
a CrossFit culture within the broader endurance community that, you know, people will sort of take a CrossFit based approach to training for, um, you know, endurance events, which is just, I mean, the science couldn't be clearer. It's, it's a waste of time. I mean, if you're doing that versus nothing, yeah, you're going to improve and you might think it was a good path. But if you compare that to, you know, a scaled down version of what the pros are doing, you're not going to improve nearly as much. Um, what does that mean, though? It means, it means uh, like really overemphasizing like high intensity intervals versus, you know, uh, longer, slower types of workouts, you know, overemphasizing strength training. Um, you know, stuff that's not bad, it's just overemphasized in that particular environment. But, you know, it, it's, it's caught on with, you know, a, a lot of people. Um, and, you know, it, it's okay. I mean, this thing, if it is a hobby and you just like doing that way, you don't really care if you could improve more doing something else, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, that's, that's not what I coach. I just, I, I like to let people know you know, what would give them the best results. And then I, I'm, I'm happy when I'm able to persuade them <laughs> to take that path. Another good example, unfortunately, is sort of come and gone is the barefoot running thing. You know, that became huge for a while. Is You know, you never saw any elite runners doing that. I mean, they would do a, a minimal amount of, you know, a few, a few uh, you know, short sprints on grass and, and bare feet, but not just ditching their shoes and you know, running marathons on asphalt barefoot. Um, but, you know, that, that, that became a thing for a while. And, so, you know, something else will come along like it uh, sooner or later, inevitably. So those are some other examples. For, for pros who have separated themselves from, uh, from, from the pack and really stand out, what are some of the things that you see that they do consistently? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a great question because it's so interesting to me. You know, I spent uh, all of last summer, 13 weeks last summer, living and training with a team of professional runners in Flagstaff, Arizona. So I was around, you know, a dozen athletes of the highest caliber, half my age, twice my talent. <laughs> and so, but it was enough people to see patterns that, you know, I mean, I've been interacting with elite athletes for more than 20 years, but this was like a sort of an, an immersion which was really fascinating. Uh, one, one thing I saw that was really striking is that by and large, like the runners on this team, they were not the, the very, very best or the very, very top performers either in high school or college. Um, and yet they were the best American runners, you know, at age, you know, 25 to 30. Uh, obviously, you know, they had enough physical talent, but, but the reason that they, you know, we're sort of, we're still doing it and, and doing it better than ever and doing it better than anyone else in, in their mid to late twenties had more to do with, um, their judgment and decision-making and, and I guess maybe, you know, the fire within them. But I, I thought that was really fascinating to see that, you know, yes, talent matters, but it's, it, you cannot underestimate the importance of, you know, what you have going on between your ears. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly how much of, you know, their mental traits are, duplicable or replicable, but, you know, it, it was, I'll give you a, a very concrete example. During my 13 weeks in Flagstaff with these runners, I never saw athletes quit workouts more than these runners did. And it wasn't because they were lacking mental toughness. It was because they had good judgment. Like, you know, these, these athletes are training at a, right on the razor's edge of what their bodies, of what the human body can handle. 
And if uh, one of them had a sinus infection and he thought, you know what, I need to not do these last two intervals and live to fight another day, I would see these athletes make that decision again and again and again. Whereas, uh, you know, the typical recreational athlete is, you know, going to look at the workout they're supposed to do and think, if I can't finish it, like my confidence will be crushed. And, you know, it means I'm not the runner that um, – that, that I, I want I want to be or it means I can't possibly achieve my goal if I can't finish this workout and then so they'll force something they shouldn't force and it will end up you know being something that you know takes them right off the rails um, so th that type of thing was really fascinating to observe yeah it sounds like they're uh, listening a lot to their intuition yeah they just you know I, I call it um, Either judgment or self-trust. That's 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 the trait. Um, it they um, you you have to be very very mentally tough <laughs> to be a successful endurance athlete. But it's not toughness is not the be all end all. You have to be every bit as smart as you are tough. Um, and a lot of people forget that. It's, I call it the hard work security blanket. Where people, it's almost you know. Hard work is hard work, but in in some respects, it can be an easy way out because if you want hard work to be the answer to everything, it means you're actually kind of lazy in other areas. Um, and the athletes who just, you know, who do succeed at the highest level, yeah, they're tough, but but they also just make good decisions, you know, at every level, you know, day after day after day. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. And I feel like, again, this applies to so many other aspects of life. Um, what were some of the other things that stood out to you about them? Well, um, another thing that was, I guess, salient was that each one of them had some kind of fire inside, like some kind of drive that would just not allow them to settle for second place. Um, and again, that's another one of those things where like, is that, you know, do you either just have it or you don't? Um, and you know, it was different, but the thing is, it wasn't the same. The motivator was not the same for each of them. Um, uh, just again, to give you, you know, a specific example. Um, so my wife, she was there with me. Actually, our, our little dog, Queenie, who I'm petting as I speak to you, uh, was there too. The whole family made, made the trip, but we lived with one of the runners on the team, a guy named Matt Yano. 
who happens to be the first openly gay professional runner in America. He was the, the very first to come out. Um, and, you know, we, you know, I was living under his roof for three months. So we, you know, we talked, I got to know his story. And he said, you know, he, he realized very, when he was quite young, that he was different. And, you know, if, you know, he was exposed to, you know, you know, locker room talk about, about gay people. And it really, it challenged him in a way. He thought, you know, geez, people think that people like me are weak, um, you know, are less than, and he didn't want to see himself that way. So even long before he came out, it became this really powerful driver for him. It's like, I'm going to show myself at least, you know, not, if not show the, the world that that's just not true. And he's another one of those guys who was definitely not the most physically gifted. Um, but he had just an, that super powerful drive. And of course, this example is so specific. I don't want it to take away from the idea that it's a different driver for everyone. But that, you know, that was the case for him. He said he was 28, you know, what, you know, last year when I was getting to know him, he said, you know, nothing's changed, even though I'm out now. And it turned out to be not a big deal. Um, that's, 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 that, um, need to sort of prove himself, uh, is still, you know, the fire inside him. Uh, that, you know, you need some kind of fire, you know, in order to perform at that level. Do you remember any of the other guys' motivators? Yeah, I mean, you know, because I, I got, I really got to know everyone uh, on the team um, for, I mean, it's just interesting how specific uh, they are. Another one of them was an Eritrean immigrant. So he was born and raised in war. Uh, he was born right after the the long decades-long uh, civil war or war between Eritrea and Ethiopia ended. Um, so rough start to his life, spent a year in a refugee camp. Uh, his whole family ended up moving to the States. He came here barely speaking a word of English, landed in Indiana of all places, really struggled to fit in, discovered running. He was a soccer player in, in Africa, but sort of discovered running kind of late in the game, you know, in his teens, but was gifted. And it became his, it's, kind of saved him. It's the thing that made him an American that, that, um, that brought him out of his shell. Um, you know, he developed friendships and that, and, you know, through running self-esteem, uh, ended up, you know, being a, a national champion in high school an all American in college. And then suddenly, you know, he's a professional runner. Um, but that, you know, that experience of just, um, you know, just having to survive very challenging and difficult circumstances, um, you know, from a, from a young age, um, that is his fire because he still feels like he can't take anything for granted, you know, um, where, you know, he, 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 you know, it's not like he thinks he could end up back in a refugee camp, but there's sort of like a, that sort of mentality is operating inside him where, you know, he's just not, he's just not going to lose <laughs> because he, the stakes feel so high to him. So obviously totally different from Matt Yano's fire, but just as powerful. Yeah, I mean, I definitely can hear what you're saying. One of the things I, I was interested, or I'm interested in is, earlier you said that these guys, like on a daily basis, are pushing the bodies to the limits. Like, for somebody who has never sort of witnessed this the way that you have, what does that look like? What, what are their daily workouts? What does somebody do at that elite level? Yeah, so, you know, Typically, so my, my whole agenda there was to do what they do, but obviously not be stupid about it. Um, so, you know, I ran more than I ever have, but I, did, I didn't run as much as they did because the idea was to 
succeed, you know, not to just destroy myself. But in terms of what they did, you know, uh, a typical week would involve probably 13 runs, like two a day every day, except for one day with uh, maybe one run. Uh, that would add up depending on their specialty and where they are in the training cycle to anywhere from 90 to 120, 130 miles of running per week. Um, you know, if, if you go back to, you know, the 70s, that, that would basically be it, just a ton of running. But, you know, the sport has evolved a lot. So in addition to all that running, these folks are doing uh, a lot of, you know, strength training. You know, and I'm not talking bench presses, but like really weird, uh, esoteric looking functional strength type workouts. There would be one group session, team session, like a coached strength workout per week. And then everyone's expected to sort of do another one on their own. And then a ton of other ancillary stuff, uh, drills, um, what are called strides, just like short sprints, um, massage, physical therapy. Um, most of them have had injuries. So, you know, by the time I ended my 13 weeks there, I was doing 30, 30 to 35 minutes a day of sort of rehab stuff that was completely outside of, you know, structured formal workouts. So that, that ends up being you know, a big part of your day as well. Um, if you're training that level, you absolutely have to nap in the afternoon. So they're down for an hour or you know, two every afternoon sleeping. Um, so it's funny, you, you might picture it as, oh, you run twice a day and you just kind of hang out watching TV, that's fun. No, you're, you're going all day long. Uh, you know, it is you know, a, a full on professional sport um, that, uh, yeah, I, I didn't get a lot of writing done when I was in Flagstaff. <laughs> was that, it doesn't sound just like a professional sport. It sounds like just a profession, right? Like you get up in the morning, you go to work, and you're, you're working all day long. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it looks different than what most people would consider work. I mean, take the nap part. Like that doesn't look like work. But, I mean, it's absolutely – it is. It's absolutely essential to, you know, to – I mean, everything's at stake for these folks. You know, I, I saw it when I was there, you know, I, so I was there for 13 weeks and then came back a year later uh, just to visit. And it was a whole new team. Like four or five runners on the team had been let go because they weren't performing uh, well enough. It's, you know, it's a what have you done for me lately proposition, just like any other professional sport. So, you know, the stakes are so high. The pressure is on. So, you know, they're not napping because they're lazier because they've got this, you know, you know, easy dream life. They're napping because if they don't, they might not have a job next year. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing. Um, I, I want to go into each of these a little bit with a little bit more detail. Like when somebody naps, how long do they nap for? Uh, I, I think a, a, an hour would be minimum. Um but it could be, you know, I think Matt, you know, the guy I lived with was typically about two hours every afternoon. Now, you know, because I, I was not a professional runner, I was just um, living like one. I did have to, you know, squeeze in, you know, other work during the day when I was there. And so initially I, I you know, I was going to do everything they did except nap. <laughs> you know, I felt like I just don't have time for that, you know, so too bad. But, you know, when I got deep enough into the process, I had no choice in the matter anymore. Like I, I had to do like they do. So I didn't quite get to the level these these folks are at. But uh, it was just interesting to see that happen where the choice was just taken away from me. My body made it for me. And around what time do these people wake up and around what time 
do they run and around what time do they nap and what time do they do their final run? When do they eat? What does the schedule look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, a typical day would be maybe up at six, um, sometimes earlier, you know, if, if they have like an early run, sometimes they'll do important runs at the same time that a race would start. Um, but typically they'd be up around six. Uh, they would meet for a morning run with the team. Uh, you know, most of them are just easy runs because that, that accounts for about 80% of their mileage, but it might be, you know, a workout, um, hills or track work or, uh, road work. Uh, but that the morning run, uh, six days a week is with the team. And sometimes it's not all members of the team in the same place. Uh, but that's the general pattern at eight, eight 30, you're meeting up running with a group. Um, on Thursday, they would go right from that first run to the team strength workout. But every other day you sort of, you know, break up, disperse after that, uh, and do your own thing. Uh, lunch at lunchtime, uh, nap after that. Um, and then some kind of afternoon run, uh, maybe, uh, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Usually those are on your own affairs. Once a week, they would meet up for drills, plyometrics and strides. So they would do an easy run before that and then do all that, that, that fancy stuff. Um, and then, you know, dinner at dinner time. And, you know, most of them, <laughs> it was funny because, you know, the house I lived in, uh, Matt, he would, he rented out room not only a room to myself and my wife, but he had another bedroom he would run out. So you know, there would be like a runner or a running couple would come stay for two weeks and then there would be another one. But no matter who was in the house, uh, it was pretty much dark by 8.30 at night every night. Uh, people were you know, to bed pretty darn early. You didn't say breakfast. Do people eat? I mean, do these, oh, yeah. uh, well, when do, do they eat breakfast before they run or after they run? Yeah, usually, uh, well, almost always something before. We had what were known as depletion runs where you were not allowed to eat before, but those were few and far between. So uh, I'm an early riser, so I was up at 5 every morning just like I am uh, yeah, at home. Uh, but but Matt, who, you know, the, the real pro, I think he was more typical of the lifestyle. Six was more the norm for him. And then, yeah, food was the first order. Because as you can imagine, these guys eat a lot. Uh, they, they have to um super healthy um it was humbling because i thought i had a healthy diet until i saw what what matt ate every day but um yeah like food would be the first order of business you know something he could get you know digested uh within a couple of hours that he could run comfortably but yeah what were they eating uh so you know matt's thing it's funny because i wrote a whole book on this it's called the endurance diet uh where i traveled all around the world eating with the world's best endurance athletes um kind of looking for common patterns and one one pattern i saw over and over again was um in, in an effort to sort of check all the nutritional boxes and have a very well-rounded inclusive diet they would do a lot of bowls you know where the bowls that would combine just uh things that you wouldn't think would belong in all in the same bowl together so matt would do a lot of stuff like that so it might be some kind of oatmeal or smoothie bowl in the morning uh, and maybe, you know, his other meals would be more of, uh, like a, a grain or starch based bowl with, you know, vegetables and, and meat. Um, but I would often ask him, you know, cause I, I, I was, when I was there, I was reporting for a, a book, uh, that I'm writing called the running bum. Um, so I was sort of, I wasn't just observing, I was actively observing. So I, you know, I would, I would ask Matt, like what's in the bowl. 
And it wasn't just like two or three things. It was nine, 10, 11, 12 things in the bowl that I would have to sort of write down or I'd be like, can you just email that to me? Uh, so yeah, just, uh, you know, sort of a weird diet in one sense, but not, not really monastic. I mean, the, the Matt liked to cook a lot. He was often cooking out of cookbooks and you know, kind of a foodie. So he ate super healthy and there was nothing that he forbade himself. Uh, you know, there were no like evil nutrients or toxic foods that he completely avoided. It was just, you know, just very, very high standards. Um, but, you know, good, good, yummy, well-rounded diet. Was he like counting nutrients and calories or is he, was he just sort of like, was he cooking the same, you said he cooked out of a cookbook, but was he, do you feel like he's eating the same meals most days? Um, how do you feel like he approached or the other people there approached their food preparation? Yeah, d definitely what I found in, in my research for the book I mentioned was that by and large, these folks are not counting calories or, or, or nutrients. Um, there, there's an, an awareness um, and there might be a day when they, uh, for example, like on a recovery day, a day when on the rare day when Matt did not run at all, he would consciously not eat as much carbohydrate. Um, but by and large, he's not counting er everything, but he knows what he's getting because it is everyone's diet is habitual. I mean, this is the thing that annoys, I'm, I'm writing a, a meal plan for a magazine right now. The thing that annoys me about most meal plans is that they're completely unrealistic. They're just like the nutritionist showing off. It's like, I don't care who you are, you, you're going to, you're going to have routines. You know, you're not going to have, you know, seven different breakfasts in seven days. I'm sorry. Um, so Matt, Matt's diet was way more varied than that of, of most people, but it was, it was varied in the sense of that his bowl had 12 things in it. Not that he ate a completely different bowl every single day. You know, you know what I mean? So I definitely saw patterns you know where it's like okay i mean it all just seems so um you know so novel when i was first exposed to it but after 13 weeks i thought okay yeah i know what uh, i know what's in that bowl um so yeah i mean it was not all over the map but again you know a more definitely a more varied diet than than almost anyone else is eating well, first what type of foods were in his bowl yeah it might be helpful to call up a specific example for you if I can um, I can actually open one up and, and just give you exactly what was in it um, and again there, there, there definitely was variety like they weren't uh, so here, here's a specific this I think this was the first thing I saw him eating like on you know my first day it was it was lunch or dinner um this was actually a salad so he did you know salads bowls whatever um one pot meals but this one was a salad of kale broccoli shaved brussels sprouts cabbage radicchio avocado cranberries roasted pumpkin seeds and apple cider vinaigrette topped with roasted chicken breast that's 10 10 items 10. what and that was for breakfast no that was uh that that was um Let's see. That was that was a lunch for him. He ate it at his breakfast bar. I, don't, I may have said that, uh, but yeah, that was a lunch. That's super healthy. What do you, do you have? Any other examples? Oh boy. Um, let's see. <laughs> I mean, while you're looking, I think what's fascinating about that is that's just so clean. Right? Yes, there's it's super clean eating. 
and um, much cleaner than most people I feel like eat. <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly it. It was like it, it was it was very clean, and that that was his thing. But you know, Matt has a sweet tooth, and you know, I would see him. He would he would cook up muffins. My wife and I showed up with a with like a bushel of pluots from a tree in our backyard because you know we were leaving for the whole summer, so we just. We raided our tree, showed up on his door, and said, "Hey, we've got a bushel of pluots." So he would he would make uh, you know desserts out of them. Um, so again, like this is, the thing I see a lot of recreational runners doing is, um, you know, just going with the fads, you know, and like very sort of restrictive, no fun types of diets. Where like you're not allowed to eat any X or Y or Z. You know, Matt didn't do that. So yeah, clean, but. Um, it, it didn't take like a ton of restraint or discipline or willpower for him to keep eating that way because the food tasted good. And if he wanted a sweet, he had a sweet, you know, no, no big deal. How do you feel about, um, for runners diets, like, uh, vegan or vegetarian? What is your perspective on that? All right. Before I ask, I uh, answer that question. Uh, I'm going to give you another example. <laughs> so, cause you asked for one and I found one. Yeah. Awesome. So, so when I went back to visit, I, I sort of uh, my wife and I ambushed Matt at his house. He's actually one of those runners who's no longer on the team. He he left by choice, but I made sure to visit him, and I caught him at eating his lunch, and it was uh, a bowl of uh, grilled sriracha salmon, roasted Brussels sprouts, sweet potatoes, and farro, uh, and that so you know a similar shtick, you know what I mean, but different ingredients except except for the Brussels sprouts. Um, so yeah, um, so yeah, um, what I see with you know runners or athletes who like go vegan or like you know there's like a no grain diet you know, or there's you know, paleo which is kind of a version of that you know when they're um, when they're just sort of doing the opposite of what what Matt and most elite runners do and, and instead of making their diet more inclusive they make it more restrictive like sometimes it works out fine. But very often it leads to specific problems. Um, I, I often say if I had a dime for every uh, vegan runner who came to me with iron deficiency anemia, I would drive a much better car than I do. Um, and then you know people who go with like down the paleo route or the super low carb route, they develop uh, often overtraining syndrome, um, like a you know chronic fatigue type of syndrome, uh, and you know the, the bottom just falls out from their training and often they, they can't concentrate at work they just have no energy so I, I i clean up the mess for again some people they they do okay but but what i try to tell these athletes is you're just making it harder for yourself by eliminating food groups so like um you know it's like going into battle with one arm tied behind your back like yeah you might win but it's not as likely. So, you know, why go down that path in the first place? Like, if you, if you become a vegan for, you know, ethical reasons, fine, I totally get that. That's beyond my pay grade. Like, but if like, if, if all you care about is like health and performance, that's not the way you want to go. You, you want to eat everything and just have high standards. Do you feel like there's different diets that people should be on based on their blood type or uh, their body type or any like are there other yeah how does somebody know what their optimal diet is do you have any instincts on that yeah um you know what what i observed in in doing the research for the endurance diet was that um you know that that metabolic individuality thing is real but 
way overplayed in, in certain quarters. You know, people think they're more special than they really are. <laughs> we're, we're all human and we're mostly the same. And so that's what I found is that there are certain universals, um, you know, the, the patterns I saw, one of them being the sort of the eat everything pattern. You know, that's what I saw time and time again, athletes who were consistently succeeding at the highest level had a very well-rounded inclusive diet. So I think that's for everyone. Um, however, you know, we, we are also individual and, um, you know, it could be something as obvious as an allergy or an intolerance so that a certain food is just a no go for you. But sometimes it's hard to just, you know, you know, put science on it. You just notice that some pattern just doesn't agree with you. But what was interesting is, you know, one of the things you asked earlier, what makes these elites different, they're extremely tuned into their bodies and they take sort of a, a no stone unturned approach to getting better, including, you know, in, in the dietary realm. I had a, an interesting observation. I spent a few days in Spain with a professional cycling team and there were, uh, I think, 16 athletes uh, on the team there. They ate all their meals together. All their food was provided by team staff. But they had a variety of options available. And I remember, I think the first dinner I had with the team, I looked around at the plates on the table and no two plates had exactly the same foods on them. And when I went around the table asking, you know, why are you eating this and not that? They all had reasons. Like they were, so they, they were absolutely on the same basic diet. <laughs> you know, they were operating within the same parameters, you know, not breaking the rules you can't get away with breaking. But they also did attend to their individual needs. Um, so I, I don't think it's really as simple as finding out your blood type and eating that way. A, a lot of it is more the responsibility is on you individually to, you know, you, you start out with, you know, general best practices and then you pay attention. You know, uh, you, know you, you learn, you know, ca cause and effect, you know. And sort of your diet really should sort of evolve a little bit uh, so it becomes optimized over time. What were some of the reasons these people gave for eating certain foods and not eating others? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, I remember the, the, yeah, the first athlete I asked that question and that specific answer, like, answer you said, well, I'm eating because I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's important to keep that in mind. I tell athletes all the time, like if you want to improve your diet for to perform better, don't start over. Tweak what you're already doing. Like my advice is change as little as possible because you eat the way you do for a reason. Presumably you eat things you like, you eat things that maybe are culturally familiar to you. And there's a certain inertia with all that stuff. And, you know, habit change is hard. Why make it harder than necessary? The thing I, I hate about a lot of the fad diets is that they don't care what you like. They don't care what you have found agrees with you or doesn't in the past. They demand that everyone start over. It's like, oh, you want to go on the paleo diet? Well, here's the paleo diet, and if you fail, it's your fault. Um, you know, when I work with an athlete, I don't just say, here's the diet. I spend the first hour asking them questions. It's like, what do you eat now? What do you like? You know, what are your habits? What are your you know, constraints, you know, do you travel a lot or whatever, you know, do you, are you good at cooking? Do you not cook much? And then, you know, so I know what the best practices are, but I, I take an athlete from where they are now and sort of move them in the direction of best practices, changing as little as possible in order to get the results they want because the diet will be more sustainable if you do it that way versus starting over. 
Um, so yeah, I just got off track, but you know, I think it was like, there was some, um, like flourless dessert that was being served to the cyclists that night. And, uh, one athlete just passed on it and he said, I just don't like that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, but you know, probably not what you were looking for, but I still think very important because athletes are human beings and you, you have to, you know, I don't care how healthy your diet is. You're not going to sustain it if you hate it. Um, so giving yourself license to eat, you know, to follow your preferences, um, without breaking on the rules, you can't get away with breaking, um, is important. Um, you know, uh, there was, uh, I remember another athlete, different context I encountered, but, a a, a very high level elite, uh, Ironman triathlete who just couldn't do most grains for whatever reason, uh, they um, they was, you, know, you see this, I have a, I have a, my, my Buddhist brothers like that too. It's like when he eats bread, he just feels like he weighs a thousand pounds. Um, but what, what many recreational runners would do in that circumstance, they would say, Oh, all carbs are bad. And they would go on a low carb diet and crash and burn what this athlete did because her livelihood depended on being able to perform and avoiding unnecessary risks is that she avoided the specific high carb foods, most grains that didn't work for her and loaded up on things like sweet potatoes and bananas and other hard, uh, you know, it was a pretty short list that she could do right. But so she still had a high carb diet, but it was just a limited number of foods that sort of agreed with what was a very sensitive system. Um, and you know, you don't need a diagnosis. Like if, if that's what works, just do it. And you know, if you ever figure out exactly why you're that way, whatever, but you've, you know, you've already solved the problem just by observing the pattern and adjusting accordingly. I think it's great advice. I wasn't really looking for sort of anything. I didn't know what you were going to say. I, I really like this idea that has been like sort of gone through this entire podcast about just listening to intuition, right? So yeah. taste is, it can be a form of intuition. And also this idea of like not trying to change things so radically that they're not unsustainable. I think about New Year's resolutions and so many people set these crazy New Year's resolutions and then they fail within the first month or two because they're not sustainable. And you're just saying, well, okay, like at least what I'm hearing, what you're saying is like, okay, you're starting where you're at. Try to take, remove this one food or try adding in this other food. Like it's really iterative and it sounds as you just, you described much more sustainable to me. Um, and it also sounds like, Again, like you're paying a person doing this is paying attention to their intuition and and figuring out what their body needs. I know there's certain foods like I tried I've tried where I didn't really like them. I ate them a few times, and my body really liked them. And suddenly I started to crave them. And there's other foods that like that never really happened for. Um, but there's also foods that I crave that like are not really sustainable. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> if if I, if I wanted to be an endurance athlete, or yes. I want to be in good shape, or and so although I might crave them, they're not. Like, and, and it's funny um, because I found that like when I'm training and in really great shape, there's times I've been in really great shape and times I've been out of shape. And when I, f I feel like when I'm, say that I'm in a phase of my life where I'm in really good shape, oftentimes that process of getting there will involve diet and that like there are certain foods when I'm out of shape that I might crave, but when I'm in shape, I'm, I re I'm repulsed by them. Right. Like, um, I mean, does this connect to you at all or connect to things that yeah. you've seen? Yeah, um, th that, that's a pretty common pattern where, and it may be a little counterintuitive to non-athletes, um, but, um, you know, 
you have to be kind of humane <laughs> in how you approach your own diet. Like you can't be perfect all the time. And what I see very, very like sort of the norm is that when athletes are uh, focused, they have an important goal they're training for. So there's there's sort of like a shift in their mentality where they're they're kind of all in and the motivation they need to you know not only train hard but do all the little stuff to take care of their body and you know to eat with consistent high standards it's all there uh because you know their goal is they're so motivated to achieve whatever the goal is but then you know they they run the big race it's time for a break and they relax you know they let their hair down um obviously you know they're taking time off for training but also very often they will loosen their dietary standards uh you know stay up later um and gain a few pounds and that's fine it's actually it's better for you in the long term you know um you know like a, you, you you can't grow corn in the same field all year round that field needs to lie fallow in a certain period and, and humans we we're meant to live in cycles too where you just you can't be pushing in, in fifth gear all the time or you know eventually you know the, the wheels are going to come off that sort of leads me into rehab. Um, you talked a little bit about sleep. You're talking about uh, sort of a fallow season um, or break where somebody gives their body the opportunity to to relax a little bit. You mentioned um, in a training day that um, they would have rehab. Maybe they would get massage. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the rehab strategies that, that these athletes that you've witnessed uh, that perform so well like do habitually yeah so the, the way it typically works is you get an injury you go to see a physical therapist and who you, specifically whom you see matters a lot um where i live i, I live out in the country it's, it's kind of like an endurance athlete desert um so i when i get injured i don't even go to physical therapists around here because they don't know runners they don't know high level endurance athletes they so um, I, you know, I tried, but realized I was kind of wasting my time, but in that professional environment, you, you know, if you go to a physical therapist, it's someone who's seeing athletes like you all day, every day. Um, so it's like anything else. It's specialized and these people know their stuff. So you get an injury, you see a physical therapist, they might do, you know, X, Y, or Z treatment on it, but the, they're going to try and, uh, figure out why you got the injury and what you can change in terms of you know your body and it's you know strength mobility whatever that will reduce the likelihood that you get the injury again sort of to, to help you overcome your current issue but also prevent a recurrence so you, you'll end up walking away with you know a set of three four or five exercises to do probably daily and then maybe a year later you get a different injury and you <laughs> you go through the same process and you get some more exercises to do and but you're not supposed to give up the other ones because like you, as long as you remain a competitive athlete you want to prevent you know a recurrence of that first issue so for me this happened on it, I, i'm older but i'm also i am injury prone i i warned the coach of this team uh, that uh, i'm going to get injured <laughs> during, during during my summer with you just be prepared and I ended up having three separate injuries, uh, two minor, one major uh, during my 13 weeks there. So I, I sort of went through this process in an accelerated way. So I did a little bit of like, you know, 
stretching and such. And, and it was like kind of the last, it's the last thing I do before I go to bed at night, maybe a little foam rolling or whatever. But with these three injuries, I just rapidly accumulated, you know, this, you know, this growing uh, set of exercises that I needed to do on a daily basis so that, you know, by the time the process ended, it was a good uh, 35 minutes. But a lot of them, you know, they're seeing the same people. So a lot of them, the athletes are doing the same stuff. And like there was one guy on the team, he, he was the one, uh, Aaron Braun, the one runner who I was training for the Chicago Marathon last year. And Aaron was the one on, one official member of the team, one real pro who was also training for that race. So I got to know him especially well. But he was um, he, he, he would do he was always whenever we met for a group run, he was always the last one to be ready to start because he had this chronic hip issue. Um, and he just, he couldn't run unless he did what he called his old man exercises before he started. So, you know, we would, we'd warm up and then he would just be down on the ground doing all this, you know, these weird, I don't know who comes up with these exercises, but he just, it, it was just a bunch of stuff he had to do before he would run a step. Um, and it's just, it's part of the routine. When people warm up in, in these circles, are they stretching? Are they doing calisthenics? Like, uh, what does that normally look and feel like? The t typical routine would be like, you get out of the car and you do um, some initial, like sort of muscle activation exercises, like, you know, weird looking stuff that's designed to get your brain to connect to your muscles before you actually ask them to do anything stressful. Um, so like there was one woman on the team staff, like her thing was she would stand with her feet crossed and then sort of reach down toward her foot, like she reached down toward her right foot with her right hand, but without bending her knees so that her hand actually didn't, it didn't look at all like a toe touch. She actually wasn't getting down that far. Um, cause she wasn't trying to, she was sort of trying to go to the side more than to actually touch her toe. And then she would do it on the other side. And that was sort of one of those muscle activation things, trying to wake up her, her glutes. Um, and then it would typically be a two or three mile. I mean, people think two or three miles, that's a workout right there, but it would be, this isn't even the workout yet. <laughs> two or three miles of jogging. And then, um, if it, you know, if it is sort of a high intensity session, then, uh, so drills, which are more sort of ballistic active movements, like the high knee types of things, different sorts of variations on skips. Uh, to really prime the neuromuscular system for intense exertion. Some strides, like some, just some short, relaxed sprints uh, to, to kind of finish the job, and then you're ready for the workout. Uh, so kind of a multi-step process. You said that people do about 100, and, or you mentioned that these guys do 100, 120, 130 miles a week. I mean, are they doing 8, 9, 10 miles a day, or is it varied? Like, what, what does this look like? Yeah, there's certainly variation, um, but it will typically be two runs a day, uh, whatever the bigger run is for the day, either longer or harder, more intense, is in the morning, and the afternoon run is almost always uh, just relatively short and easy, um, you know, four, six, eight miles, <laughs> um, and maybe some drills or whatever on top of that, so that that's the normal pattern. Um, and, uh, you know, the big, you know, the typical marathoner is doing like, you know, even a fairly serious recreational marathoner is, is running maybe like six miles a day through the week and then like a big 20 mile run on the weekend. But, you know, we, when I was with the team, we would do like a, you know, a, a workout on the road, um, 
involving, you know, intervals and, and some faster stuff. And by the time I finished it, I would realize, man, we just ran 18 miles. Uh, a bunch of it was fast and it was, it was so broken up that it, it did not feel anything like just going out and running 18 miles. But that, so that's how you get up to 120 is that you can just have a workout that isn't even, isn't even classified as a long run. And by the time you're done with it, it's 18 miles. And oh yeah, by the way, you're going to run six in the afternoon on top of that. Um, but then you also, you also do get the long runs on the weekend where you just go out and run 26 miles, uh, nice and easy or whatever. Do they run every day or their day is off? Um, typically, it's um, twice a day, six days a week, and then their day off is a one-run day. Um, days off almost only happen when there's a need to, um, and they're, they're not shy about it. Like they, they're, they, I mean, they're, they're motivated. They want to be out there training, but they, when they need rest, they will take it. And, and so the coach, Ben Rosario, would just say, hey, I, I don't like the way – you're telling me your hip is feeling, let's take tomorrow off. So the, the days off will typically happen as needed or, you know, maybe uh, a day or two off after a race. Um, I would get scheduled days off. Um, so I did, I had a couple as needed days, but um, because just my body couldn't handle uh, what these younger, more gifted bodies could handle, like every two or three weeks, I would have a scheduled day off. And we're sort of getting towards the end of the time. One of the things that you've talked a lot about is mentorship and coaching. And I'm wondering if you can talk about why that's important, like how that's important, how many, how somebody picks the right mentor, um, what they should expect them, sort of anything that comes up around that. Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, that gets back to uh, the point I made about sort of judgment and good decision making. You know, the, the thing is like, it's a bit of a catch 22 because um, you, you can't be an expert in everything, but you sort of have to be an expert in order to choose the right experts <laughs> to listen to, you know, when they're not, uh, and that's on you, you know, you, you, you can't be someone who's susceptible to snake oil cells. Um, so, you know, I just, you know, for me, what has worked for me, you know, I, I've, I've, I've gained a certain expertise, but I didn't start there. And what always worked for me was, uh, taking my cues from real world best practices. Like when I see some, when I see like a certain, you know, dietary or training practice or whatever else consistently associated with success at the highest level, that's what I want to emulate, you know, not uh, something that's being peddled in a popular book or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, DVD series or, or what have you. So, um, none of us can get to the mountaintop on our own. You have to have, coaches and mentors, but the part that really is on you is just having a sense of whom to put your, your faith and, and trust in. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can offer much advice beyond what I just said. It's just you know, like, you know, be wary of the people who are claiming to have a secret sauce that, you know, doesn't seem to be on the plates of the people <laughs> who are, you know, performing at the highest level. I think it's great. And maybe it's your journalistic instinct or maybe it's something else, but this idea of just going to the source. Yeah. 
That has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn about Matt's books and all the different things that he does, we're going to post links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so that you can find out about him and his work more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks a lot. It was fun. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.